HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief and film today with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora. And Bobby Conforto. Hey, Bobby. How's it going? Hey, Zaz. That was a really fun episode, as we said on the show. It's always wonderful to to meet Susanna and meet with her and, and talk about films and just talk about life. She has such a wonderful philosophical take on things. A lovely human being. I really enjoyed the show. Yeah. Susanna is a lovely person and just reminds me of, she's just a, a real intellectual. She's very smart and very poised and has such like a wonderful like demeanor. She's just a wonderful person. So smart. Um, she just seems, seems like someone like you, you would have met in like New York city in the 1970s and would have blown your mind at a party. Like, you know what I mean? You're like, Mm -hmm. she's just very cool. Um, but she blows our minds in the 2020s. He does. Exactly. She's very, very awesome. We're lucky to have her. We discussed two wonderful films today, Nomad Land and Shiva baby and talk about how, you know, the intersection of food and grief is realized in both of these films. They're very different films. They are both films that came out this year made by, uh, women directors and, um, they're both definitely worth your time. And yeah, we had a really great conversation and it was fun. I love when Susanna comes on and, and, uh, that's very evident. (laughs) We were just like, we love you. Um, and can't wait to have her back again. Uh, we were at the end of the show. We all chit-chatted about our next uh, opportunity to work together. So we can't wait for that. And please enjoy our conversation with Susanna. Enjoy, folks. Take good care. Okay, bye. Bye. 
York City, we are experiencing one of the biggest rainstorms that I've ever seen. Susanna Gruder, our guest today. Susanna, is it raining over where you are? It is, and luckily I got home just in time. Um, I was on bike, so oh my God. we're good. <laughs> oh my God. I, I mean... It's kind of like a fun, like I've been trapped in a big thunderstorm a handful of times in my life, as most of us have, I'm sure. And it's like a fun memory to have. And usually it's kind of fun, like running through it, but also it's incredibly dangerous. And I just saw like out my window lightning strike, like very close. So I'm glad we're all inside. My mom just texted me making sure I was safe inside. So my mom is with us in spirit. Yeah. (laughs) And she's here. She's yeah, she's in Brooklyn too. So okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, Bobby, you know all about that about the about weather predicting and warnings. Bobby's a, a bit of a meteorologist herself. Mothers, a regular mothers champion. Do that. Watch out! Be careful. There's a storm coming. I always tell the story that we were on the beach one day. Beautiful ocean. It's always with her friends. And I watched the weather in the morning, and I knew that there was some storm coming. So I look around to, the, to her and her friends, and I say. Watch out, there's a really big storm coming. And everybody looks around and it's a blue sky, it's gorgeous. But it's it's one of those things how a mother tells you to wear a sweater when she's cold. So it's a similar yeah. similar right. quality. That's true. That's true. So Susanna, you guys may remember our wonderful guest, Susanna, as you joined us a few months ago to discuss a few wonderful films about food and grief. And you are back again today. And you had the great idea of talking about a couple of films that were released this year. And this was a really weird, obviously, I don't know if you've heard, this is kind of a weird year. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> a little strange. But like also, you know, for film and like us, you know, I'm someone mm-hmm. personally, and I know you are too, who goes and watches a lot of films and stays up on it. And I can, you know, I haven't been to the movies since last March in a theater. And I, that actually made me watch less movies that came out this year. Um, yeah. yeah, it's been really confusing to even know what is coming out. Like, you know, I I went to Sundance um, in 2020 in January, like, wow. and that was right before, you know, we were probably spreading it around then. Yeah, um, yeah <laughs> like, super spreader Sundance event. Robert Redford yeah, just giving it to everyone. God damn it, Robert. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and like, so I saw all these movies that I was really excited about, and... Mm you know, there are a lot of them are distant memory or like came out at weirdly scattered times. And, you know, usually you're just like primed, ready to go to, you know, start promoting these and talking about these movies. And it's been so weird. Like even Dick Johnson, which we talked about on the last, on the last show, it, I saw that there and then we didn't talk about it until what, like September, no October or something. And yeah, yeah. It, and now, like, we're still waiting for movies from, from that to come out. And S- Sundance has happened again. I did it from my couch, you know. Oh, yeah. and Did they get together cool. this year in person for the festival? It did not happen in person. Yeah. Um, and I think Tribeca is sort of in person. But things are still right. just very, like, mixed. And yeah. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there's still been so many good movies. It's just hard to – it's hard to figure out when things are out and like what is what you might want to save for the movie theater you know totally yeah I've been kind of plotting with my return to the like I I'm someone who would go to the movies like maybe three times a week like I love going to the movies like usually by myself sometimes with my friend Becky but like generally always by myself um 
And it's been a weird, it's just kind of go off on a tangent here, but kind of about grief and film. Like for myself, it's one way in which when I'm in a, I mean, I like going to the movies even when I'm feeling good, but it's definitely a way in which I have used to manage maybe harder feelings or harder times. Like it's stressful times. It's a great way to kind of escape. Um, and also one of the only ways I think I find myself really being disconnected from like the connected things, like being disconnected from my phone, being disconnected from emails, being disconnected from, you know, strife and worry. And it's a great escape for people who use it as such. And it's been an interesting thing to not have that as a tool this past year and a half. 100%. Yeah. I I also, the catharsis and like just full on emotion that I feel in the theater is mm-hmm. so much higher than watching something at home and there's so many yeah there's so many distractions as you said um it's like and I crave that I like love crying in the movie theater yeah me too you know I'm um a child of divorce my parents got divorced when I was very young and so I would split the week up with my folks and uh you know Bobby I went to the movies with you too but for me like one of my greatest kind of memories of the time I would get to spend with my dad which was a very unusual time particularly at first and kind of always was we would he would always take me to a movie on Sundays and so I think for Mm -hmm. me there's something attached to that of like thinking back of being with my dad and of it being a treat and really just that kind of like sensory that like sense memory of like the air conditioning and the smell of popcorn and like weird gross seats that also smell like popcorn and kind of like pee you know but it's just like it's a really good escape and I don't know. I, I really miss yeah. it. And I can't wait to get back to the theater. Have you been back to the theater yet? Yeah, I just once I went, I went once um, to see um, Gunda, which is a documentary about a pig um, on a farm awesome. that was at it was at New York Film Festival. And I was like, I don't think I have like the endurance to watch this. It's like silent. It's no, yeah. there's there's nothing except the the pig and there's no like music or anything but I heard it was great and I really wanted to see it and I was like okay it's playing at film forum like I'm vaccinated I'm going and it was really nice yeah Uh, but I haven't I'm 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 hoping to go a lot this summer yeah things feel if it feels good so so let's talk about the the films that you chose for us today do you want to talk about you want to mention what they are yeah um so for this episode, we are going to talk about um, Nomadland, which I'm sure you've heard of, you know, best picture winner um, mm-hmm. from director Chloe Zhao, um, starring Frances McDormand, um, sort of like a, a narrative, but definitely has elements of documentary um, in it about an itinerant woman living in out of her van. Um and the community that she finds and also kind of loses herself or distances herself from at times and sort of her journey. Um, And the other movie is Shiva Baby, um, directed by Emma Seligman. um, And it follows a young woman um, as she navigates a Jewish Jewish Shiva, um, which is the ceremony that you attend. It's like a Jewish wake with a lot of food, basically. Um, yeah. And um, 
and she navigates her family and also her sugar daddy who happens to be there and her ex-girlfriend and sort of all these like landmines that occur as she as she passes through yeah both great films should we start by talking about nomadland yeah i think um that's a good place to start um i mean just just quickly contrasting the two films i think um you know they both sort of show people experiencing grief in in different forms but also um one person being completely without a community and one person being like stifled by community um 100%. nomadland and shiva baby respectively um so with with nomadland you know Fern, who's the main character played by Frances McDormand, is we find out sort of in bits and pieces that she's going through um, a huge loss um, of her husband who died a few years ago and also of the town that she lived in with him, which was um, a granite. There's a giant granite plant that that shut down in Nevada, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, and the town zip code disappeared. Everything just disappeared. So she, you know, she's kind of trying to escape that, but also hold on to it. Yeah. Um, and she decides, well, it's kind of unclear how much of a choice it is for right. her to do this. And that's yeah, interesting. Because she's and provided with those options at points during the film to perhaps have a different, Yeah. Yeah, which is something interesting that we should talk about. Um, but, um, you know, she clearly is, she just wants to be alone um, and kind of sit with her grief and doesn't want to let go of the memory of her husband and her town and sort of cre creates this home in a van that is you know, first off, she lost her job, so it's a cheap way to live, and she moves from job to job. Um, like, these these low-paying, often menial jobs. Um, she works at an Amazon plant for seasonal work around the holidays. She works, you know, cleaning bathrooms at an automotive lodge. Um, she does odd jobs and doesn't make a lot of money, so it's, like, a cheap way to live. It's also a way to reject society, um, which has kind of let her down and right. let a lot of people in this community down. Um, yeah. Bobby, is this something that you have seen often in your practice with folks? Is it, um, a, is it a coping mechanism that you kind of encounter? Not necessarily becoming, you know, a nomad, but um, rejecting maybe societal norms, to feel betrayed. Is a direct response that yeah. you that you see in other ways happen with uh, people coping with st sudden grief. That's a good question. I think that people feel betrayed often by their loss, and they feel betrayed by life, by what their concept of God is. Often by their community, they often point out the people that aren't there instead of the people that are there. You know, they can become very focused on who didn't show up and who's not there to support them. But I think the other thing you mentioned is the duality of grief, where we move ahead and stay in the grief at the same, you know, two different directions. 
So, um, you know, I think the symbology of her being on the move, on the run, you know, and also very much um, grieving all the time. You know, she always seems to be in grief, although she doesn't wallow in grief. Yeah, she's, she's not she's really a wallower. wallower. You know, she doesn't talk about it a lot. She doesn't talk about it a lot. But you see it in her I think it's also something about control, though. Even, it's something that yeah. I thought about her decision-making process, especially when she's at her sister's house. And her sister's like, why don't you come live here? And she's like, I don't want to. I can't sleep in this bed. I can't live in this house. You know, I think that, like, as, you know, the viewer, we may look. And especially as a viewer who, uh, as viewers who may not know very much about poverty or be privy to it and think of it as, like, the worst possible thing that could ever happen. And I'm by no means saying it is the worst or not the worst that is not my call to make but i think that as a society that tends to push poverty uh domestic poverty aside and not really examine it look at it we cast our opinion on this must be the absolutely worst thing and for her i think like she was willing to make these sacrifices because it felt i think felt very important for her to have control in the wake of having no control right so you lose your town you lose your job you lose your husband and even if you are holding on to something that you are managing, it is something that you're managing. And I'm assuming that's something that people do often in grief in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. it's Absolutely. it's like what it's what people do when they when they have a fear of losing someone or when they have lost someone and perpetuate that fear. Um, what? Yeah, like you have control over absolutely everything in your life you don't rely on anyone so she does not want to take charity from anyone although she kind of does um yeah, <laughs> from her sister yeah. at one point yeah she doesn't want to but um she, but you know she doesn't she doesn't want to rely on anyone for a place to live she doesn't want to rely on anyone for emotional support you know um we see her rejecting advances of of people romantically she does form friendships but like nothing that she wouldn't be um okay with parting with um right exactly because she doesn't want to lose again is what you're saying you know i'm not gonna trust anybody or get close to anybody because i don't want to lose again and yet she's a very warm, you can tell she was probably a warm very person warm. because, you know, she does have friends and she meets people and she has a general uh, compassion for others. That, you know, and the couple, it's interesting because this certainly isn't a movie that I'd say is about food, but it, it is used throughout the film as a tool, I think, in different ways. And I think one of the ways in which we see that she's compassionate is a couple times when she offers food to people she brings animal crackers to her friend when he's in the hospital she brings a sandwich to a kid who's uh, a houseless person or maybe a nomad I couldn't I don't remember whether he was like fully houseless or just nomadic but um anyway um yeah it, it's, yeah. it's very interesting how she kind of uses that as a tool um of show uh, the filmmaker uses that as a tool of showing her warmth and then warmth in general throughout the film I mean you know uh, gathering around a pot of chili or, you know, having hot dogs at like the fair. It's just like, uh, I think a good reminder too, that like, you know, these traditions and these kind of ways of, uh, building community around food in certain ways are not just about doing that in ways that are fancy. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a sense, there's a sense of like, abundance even in this lack that she has like you don't have to have a full you know 
Thanksgiving dinner to have to be to have to be thankful, you know, in order to be thankful. Um, But she's Mm -hmm. also sort of showing what happens when you strip away all of that abundance. Like, what is the bare minimum that we need to survive? And food becomes fuel for her. Like, it's 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 not there's there's very little ceremony around it for her. She you know, she eats alone most of the time. And you can see like in the cafeteria scene at um, the Amazon uh, warehouse, she's like a little uncomfortable about eating in front of people, you know, and like they, everyone brings their own, of course they don't give them lunch there, you know, they, everyone brings their own like little sandwiches and stuff. And there, you know, naturally community sort of builds around those tables, even though they're like, you know, crowded tables in a warehouse. And she's like, not quite ready for that. It it seems like she has sort of, she, she, she doesn't see food. She's had to sort of strip away the like ceremony from food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She also seems to like look away when she eats, looks on into the distance. Like she's not looking mm-hmm. at what she's eating, you know. There's no real preparation that you see, obviously. But this look on her face when she eats, similar to how she was in the in yeah. the factory. One kind of connection that I wanted, that I thought. So one of the things that I liked best about this film, and you know, I know it's based on a book uh, by an investigative journalist, right, who went undercover to kind yeah. of live in this community. Um, Jessica Bruder. Jessica Bruder. So I think it's. You know, I did have some, I did think in ways it was problematic for maybe not kind of showing, uh, for instance, the atrocities of what actually happens in an Amazon factory. You know what I mean? Things of that nature. And I think there are flaws in it, but overall I, I enjoyed it. And I think one of the best things about it was that in this time, politically particularly, and even more so, you know, before this past November, there's been a very kind of... Uh, what I think of as a very insidious and bad narrative, uh, and this is by no means in defense of Trump or Trump supporters or anything like that per se, but just of like otherness, right? Like, oh, those are those dumb, stupid, racist Trump supporters. They do that, right? Like, and I have always believed, and I, I think this is true, and I try to have this conversation with people, that there are all kinds of people out there who vote for all different kinds of reasons. Some people don't have anything at all. They don't even have the time of day. They don't have the time in their day to, they're working as a 78 year old person at an Amazon plant and are voting based on, you know, the fact that they're just trying to literally put food in their mouth and gas in their cars. I think it's very valuable to have a film that just shows swaths of different kinds of lifestyles and of income levels and of people, how they live in this country that a lot of people, uh, liberals and, you know, people just kind of cast aside as like other and stupid and Mm -hmm. ignorant and racist. And so I think for that reason, and I'm not saying that the characters in this film were Trump supporters or not Trump supporters, but I think it's fair to say that like there are community people that like are often, you know, forgotten about and not thought about and swept under the rug. And so I think it was very valuable in that way. And then in some sense to tie that kind of to food, I think we also, a lot of us tend to be like in this day and age, and I'm, again, not supporting Campbell's soup or processed foods or chemicals or anything like that, but like people 
are eating this food for other reasons other than that they're stupid or they don't care or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, like people rely on inexpensive food to survive. And I think it's important just as it is important to like embrace all different kind of human beings in this country and outside of it also to like, I don't know, kind of stop food. I mean, yes, this is a problem that can be taken up with corporate America and obviously, you know, giving poor quality food to people for cheap is not a good thing. But I just think like in seeing the way that people gather around a pot of Campbell's chicken soup, it needs to be like honored. You know what I mean? Because that's a special moment for some people. Like to see her in that scene where she's like heating up Campbell's chicken noodle soup. And that's something that we can turn our noses up at so easily or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, it's not real and it's not home cooked and it should be like this. Like, I just think it's important for people to have a little bit of a broader line of sight as to like what different people experience uh, in in this country. And I think that was something that the film did really effectively. Yeah, that's a really awesome point. Um, I think, yeah, people have raised concerns about the sort of romanticization of the lifestyle that they're living and of the of being a Amazon worker and it's like you know those are valid points but one way of looking at it is that you know um it's easy for us to sit here and say that Amazon is evil it's another thing when there's a job offer, you know, and you need a job and you don't really have the, the time to, or the luxury to critique their politics, um, or critique the politics of like Chick-fil-A or whatever, you know, it's there and it's food and it's, it's fuel. And, and so is, so is money. Yeah. I think it just is very valuable. I also think what you were trying, I was just going to say, I think what you were also talking about, that there was inclusivity to their otherness. So it's true. They're, it's an, they're others. They're outside of our normal life. But the, the movie brought an inclusivity to it. It included us in our understanding this of is all norm- people. You know what I think is important? This is normal life. Like, we think that, like, being middle class to upper middle class people who live in major cities and have the privilege to read newspapers and go to movies and do things like is normal life like it is a version of normal life then then that is all that's normal life you know what I mean like people's life that they live is normal for them and therefore is normal in general and I think like it was so I think anyone who hasn't seen it like you know there's one way to kind of take in uh film and be like oh wow that's crazy that's why that's wild I can't believe that you know, but this is like something that's based on real human beings who are really living here in this country. And as a, I think it is a vehicle for people to really try to practice more empathy. For me, after seeing this film, like, I was like, I hope this really strikes people to understand that, like, there's reasons behind why people make decisions. And I mean, we're all kind of saying the same thing. There's reasons why people might take a job at Amazon or go to eat at Chick-fil-A. There's reasons why people might vote for Donald Trump that is not because they're an asshole or a racist or ignorant. Um, There's, you know what I mean? Like there's just so many different stories out there and so many different ways of life, which are normal. And I think the more that we can kind of get back to that and find like 
the kind of empathy and commonality and also just not like, oh, those those wild people out there driving around in their vans, how crazy, you know what I mean? Like, no, these are human beings who are coping with life in this way and that's fine, you know? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I just really kind of appreciated that very like honest perspective. And Susanna, like you're saying, like there is something in the, you know, yes, there was, there was problems with not shining a light into, you know, the abusive kind of nature of Amazon. But yeah, like glamorizing this lifestyle in a way, like I think just really does provide, uh, I don't know, just makes it like a real lifestyle. It's, you know what I mean? Not just that like anyone who isn't middle, upper class, everyone else's life sucks. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense of, of pride and of preciousness about their lives, you know, like that there's when Fern is, you know, giving a little tour of her van and like this kitchen that she built out, it's so she's like, this is, this is my, she's very precious about it. You know, like I, this gives more storage. This gives more counter space. Like that's something that she should be as proud of as any other accomplishment that <laughs> anyone could have, 100%. you know? hundred percent. Um, yeah. Or as proud as we Absolutely. are. Farms. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought it was really, um, really beautiful and really effective in that way and the sense of just like you know we talk a lot about community on this show because like there's such a need for community I think when you're grieving um and it was such a beautiful example uh, one of the best examples I think of of community I read like a really interesting review I think it was in Slate um that said there's never really been an effective like anti-war movie and in the same tone, they were saying like that there's kind of never been a effective like anti road movie, like any movie ever like made about being on the road, even if it's meant to be like, you know, showing like a dark or ugly side of being on the road, like I don't know, like Easy Rider or something. Like it always also seems like romantic in some way. What do you think about that, Susanna? Yeah, I mean, it you can't help, but just if you turn your camera on anywhere they are it's beautiful it's like they are out in the world and you know it's it's like they one woman says when she's giving a tutorial she's like I love this lifestyle I love being on the road you know um I love seeing nature but at the same time you got to deal with your shit (laughs) and like there's that too and yes certainly we're thinking about both of those things um so I think that that's kind of like a good encapsulation of the duality of the lifestyle. And I think it shows both of those sides, but I think that leaning into the not glamorous, but like, uh, transcendent, you know, elements of, of the, of this life is, is, does it a service? Um, doesn't take away from her struggle. It, it just shows that like, people do this for a reason, you know? Yeah. People do it for a reason. And also I think, you know, let's keep it with the Amazon theme. We think about Jeff Bezos, right? The richest person in the world. I don't think that Jeff Bezos probably wakes up any happier than those people that were featured in the film, to be honest. I think that money can afford a certain kind of 
uh, alleviation from certain pressures, of course. And I am not going to speak for anyone who is um, involuntarily houseless or really suffering from poverty and say, you're just as happy. It's, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that, like, there is a lot of, you know, we're taught to think, I think, because of capitalism, that the, you know, that money, like, the old cliche that money buys happiness and it tr- and it really doesn't and i think it's important to remind ourselves of this and especially if we ever hope to move away from like this oppressive horrible capitalist society that we live in that like that's just not it's not a one to one it's not equal there's pain and suffering from people who have millions of dollars and there's emotional pain and suffering from people who have no dollars and there's happiness you know what i mean i, I don't what do you do you think yeah. that the, that was part of the messaging of this film at all yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Fern's attitude is is so... I mean, it's nuanced, but there's just a lot of sort of acceptance. Um, and, you know, even just, like, having, having Frances McDormand be, like, one of two professional actors who are playing these nomads, like you know, it, it, it gives, it adds a little bit to the, the story because she, like Fern comes from possibly a different background than a lot of these people. Her sister lives in like wealth and very comfortable suburbs. Um, and, and she, um, she sort of is able to not conform, but like assimilate and find herself at home in this world um the same way that like Frances McDormand you know it because of the kind of actress that she is like kind of just works in this part and like there there aren't many other people who would um and great casting yeah I mean and she won best actress uh, at the Oscars and um and I you know deservedly so um at the same time, like watching this movie again, um, just after, I mean, it came out during the pandemic. So I was already thinking about these things, but like just after another like six or eight months, I was just thinking about like the, how easily, how easy it could be for anyone to kind of fall into this kind of situation. And like, I think we're all, mm-hmm coming becoming more aware of that it's it's become closer for a lot of people um whether you're experiencing that directly or you're seeing that in your friends or just on the news like it's it's real you know it's not it's not something that is like you said like other it it in a second it could happen to anyone and especially this year. So I think like there, it was, it definitely was like this uneasiness watching it that I didn't, I didn't quite come away with like the, the uh, any much uplifting, much of an uplifting note this time. And you can, it can be that way, but just this yeah. time for me, it was, it was very, it was a little darker. Yeah. I think there's a very fine line between her 
restlessness, which is always there, and her grief that we talked about before, and her acceptance of what is. It's a very fine line. I think she's doing mm-hmm. both at the same time. And um, it, it made me think of the, the Buddhist um, saying, which is, to follow what you were saying, Zara, which is that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So she's in pain, and and they all are in pain, but they're not yeah, suffering. Yeah, beautiful. That's very true. I think that's, yeah, and yeah. I mean, right, like, in some sense, like, to use the kind of metaphor of what we were just talking about, like, grief and painful situations will happen to you, and you have, you can still make your, uh, wherever you cook your food as organized and to your liking as you want. Right. Mm-hmm. So just because, um, you know, you don't have a home doesn't mean you can't have a kitchen. And I think that like, I think her adaptability, um, is, is, you know, representative of what grief is in a larger sense. You know what I mean? Learning to live in a smaller space, you're all, I, right? Like in grief, you are always learning to live in a smaller space and forever. And the safety of being in a small place, you know, very often with grief, you know, you go to your room, you, you turtle in, you know, you, you feel safer in your, in your small space until you're ready to emerge. Yeah. I think, um, you know, the, the plates that she saves are, are really important symbol so just sort of, i mean they're these these she keeps a lot of uh objects you know of belongings for you know this the movie opens in her storage unit like pulling up the curtain as she raises the garage door and like she's looking at all of her stuff that she's left behind and it's like you know what better symbol of like baggage that and like she's not done with it she's not ready to let go and like I think a lot of times we forget like the people who are living this way like had a life before and that's what she had before but like she looks at these plates which are um uh like heirloom from her father that he would go to these tag sales and collect like vintage plates and he gave them to her when she graduated from high school or something and like they're fine. I don't know. They're fine China or whatever, but they're like not something that you would necessarily use in a van. Um, but she has them and she holds on to them even though they're completely superfluous. But, and then they also represent like this idea of like eating being a ceremony and being something that, you know, you kind of, have have a sense of like uh not super casual about it like we're gonna be yeah. we're gonna be eating on the fun on the nice plates yeah yeah the ritual the rituals and there are a lot of rituals around eating including mm-hmm. the campfire and the sharing and the plates yeah, and, and then i think it's yeah. it's it's so devastating to her i mean it's such it's like so well written like when you know her um her friend Dave, um, David Strathairn, who's awesome, Silver Fox. Um, Oh my gosh, so attractive and such a good actor. I've loved him on The Sopranos. Yeah, he's wonderful. wonderful I know. Oh my God, totally love him on on The Sopranos. Sopranos. Yeah. And like kind of, yeah, similar vibes here in a weird way. But like just, you're rooting for them kind of. And she 
is not it's not that easy for her like she is she doesn't want you know they say the best way to get over someone is to be with someone else and she doesn't want that no matter how attractive and wonderful the guy is like but i think it just i think it shows that she's very wounded and maybe that's judgmental, you know, but I don't think so. Because she may just not want to be with yeah, anyone, and that's okay. But she just seems so wounded then because she said he invited her, and she goes, I have to go do my laundry. Oh, and my it God. was just such a statement. But it then when, just, he, you you know, know. when he tries to help her and ends up breaking all of her plates, it's like such a perfect symbol of just how he would mess up her beautiful little pain painful life you know yeah painful controlled life yeah it was a really beautiful film i i really recommend it it was great filmmaking i'm glad that um she won the oscar uh francis mcdormand and chloe and it was just it was amazing so shall mm-hmm. we shall we talk about our next film which is very different than this film <laughs> it's so different which yeah. i've been glad you wanted to talk about this because i have some friends of mine who i talk about movies with a lot and they're both like you guys, you need to see Shiva Baby. And I had, like, I had mixed feelings about it. What did you, how do you feel about it? How did you guys feel about it? Yeah, um, I I had wanted to see it, and um, I also sort of had mixed feelings about it, um, yeah. but I'm eager to discuss it with yeah. you guys. Yeah. Um, it, oh, totally. Obviously. Yes. It's a perfect movie to talk about on. And I like, like, I liked it. I really did like it. And I, what I liked was like, I know as a young filmmaker and I liked the effort, I feel like, um, I feel like there's a certain amount of restraint that comes with all artists work. I can speak for myself as a chef when I was 26 years old. I didn't have very much restraint. And now I have some more. You know what I mean? And I think that's actually a skill that you learn as you get older. And there's something to that, you know? So this film for me felt just kind of without the maybe um, blessing of of age, you know? Um, but, but I liked, I really did appreciate what she was doing and I definitely cannot think of a better movie to, to discuss talking about food and grief. Yeah. Bobby, did you? Well, it was interesting. I was so mm-hmm. uncomfortable. I mean, it was like gut wrenchingly uncomfortable. It was just, it, but it made me laugh. I found myself laughing at the discomfort. I guess I was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I laughed mm-hmm. and that was my response. But it was so tense and upsetting, and it just seemed like every turn there was something that was just so, um, you know, upsetting for her. Yeah, she was just La- laughing at discomfort is like a very Jewish thing. So I, that on that level, it, it worked <laughs> very much. So yeah, what about you? Susanna? Right. What do you think? Yeah. So I mean, I I thought it yeah it was just a a little like unfocused, but I you know, I guess that was what it was trying to do. Like it it got a a mood across of absolute like chaos and anxiety in a very claustrophobic space. Um, and I think that, you know, she's very talented filmmaker and the performances are, are wonderful. And I'm like excited to see what all of these people do and, um, movies about Shiva are kind of rare. So, and it's a very like fascinating phenomenon and um you know i mean 
there's so much to talk about with the way that the role that food plays in a a death ceremony, um, because it's so it's at the forefront of of the Jewish faith, you know. Um, I mean, food is at the forefront of Judaism, really. Um, I I'm I'm half Jewish, and I grew up, you know, going to shivas, but also, you know, every holiday was completely about food. Um, and that's what I will always remember. Um, and, and so I think it's very, it's very valid to, to, to make a film about that. Oh yeah, Um, for sure. We're Jewish too. We did a whole show. We did a whole show on Shiva. We had, um, Zara's yeah. friend Peter Shalsky, yeah. you know, uh, who. So, but I, what I thought was very interesting that you just said is that you're right. The space was small, and there was so much food in that dining room, and there was so much. It seemed like it was like f- flying all over yeah. the place, you know, because of the speed of how things happened and the. But the food part of it was just, you know, her eating of the bagel when she was upset, and then at one point she took food and then put it yeah. all. <laughs> Which was incredible. She made a whole plate of food, and she was so uncomfortable that that and anxious that she totally. put it all back. Well, again. that weird feeling, like you know, I happen to be someone when I'm really anxious and upset, I really don't want to eat. But then I'm also the kind of person when I'm like in a public setting like that, like I will eat in a way that like I normally don't. You know what I mean? If I'm at like a, there's like this pressure to like. There's. It's almost like you know. Being like, well, when will I ever eat again? So I better, like, you know, get this food now. Um, totally. Yeah. And then, like, you know, it's it's true. I, I'm i half Jewish and then also a quarter Italian, which is really, like, I feel like those two are the heaviest kind of Me influences. Me too. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, what's your what's other, your other quarter? Susanna, what's well, your other quarter? Well, I mean, I... It's I guess I'm only a quarter Jewish and a okay. quarter Italian because my it. gra- grandma converted to Judaism for my got grandpa. Got it, <laughs> got it, yeah. got it. Um, but yeah, the, I feel like it's a very, very similar thing in both um, in both cultures because they're both very like emotional cultures and emotive in a certain way where like, especially like in, I don't know, like in Italian culture and I, I think it's the same thing in Jewish. There's a lot of touching. There's like affection even, you know, back when, when it was like, you know, more taboo for two men to be affectionate to each other in Italian culture and Jewish culture, there's kissing on the face and hugging and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, it's okay. I think in both to admit like your feelings of grief and pain and despair to an extent, and then you plug the rest of it up with a bagel or, uh, managot. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. like you can be this sad and then, but not too sad. And the rest of it, you have to fill the void with, with food. I kind of, that's my hot take about, about <laughs> Jewish food culture and grief. Oh yeah. I mean, there's so, she's like prodded with questions from every single side and there's always the, the food table as an escape, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's the food is there, you eat it. Like whether or not you're hungry or you like or you play with it. Like yeah. it's it's the ultimate, you know, oral fixation like distraction thing that we can 
we can focus all our energy on. And yeah, you can literally plug up your mouth with it if you don't yeah. want to say anything. And also it's like a sign of respect, right? Like I can't imagine going to a Jew- to a Shiva or really to an Italian kind of wake uh, yeah. where there wasn't enough. It would almost be like disrespectful not to have enough because exactly. it's like an honoring of like how much you love that person to like, well, A, what are you going to bring? Oh, we have to get like the rugla. We have to get the, the appetizing from this place. You know what I mean? Like if you didn't have right. enough food, it would be very, it would be not, not okay. Yeah. And maybe that's why they're so, one of the reasons why they're so fixated on her weight. They're like, oh, do you care more about like your weight than like, you know, showing your respect by eating this food or, you yeah. know. Yeah. Also, that's such a thing. Um, You know, one of the things I really loved about the movie is that it was very spot on kind of like uh, dramatizing a lot of the tropes that are very real, though, in in Jewish culture from a lot of families. Um, And they were very accurate. And that's one of them is like, you know, spot like talking about weight and appearance. And it's interesting because it's not really a compliment. Right. Like it's not really a compliment if somebody who was overweight when they were a teen or struggled with their weight in a way that felt uncomfortable for them, I should say. Um, And then to like, oh, you're so skinny. Like it's a backhanded compliment, but it's something that happens so often. Like, Mm -hmm. but there were no compliments. Oh, you're so skinny. Everything was backhanded. It's like meant to be like, oh, you're just wasting away, but it's not. Yeah. It's a backhanded. Well, it's also, it's something to say besides like this person died. Like, you know, it's, it's what's like, you comment on what's in front of you. You comment on the food, you comment on someone's beard, you comment on someone's like physique. You just have to keep talking, 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 judge other people or else you might actually think about who died. And then she's like, who died? Like, we don't even know. No one even knows who died in the whole movie, which is like really great. Yeah. I mean, that's very true, which is kind of like my earlier point about like that, you know, just the gathering in itself and the act of sitting Shiva is such a kind of admission of grief. You know what I mean? Because it's like, you'll sit for seven days, Shiva, which is huge. That's a huge admission of, of the grieving process. But like, again, only to a point, like pick on someone's weight or eat another rugula or whatever. Talk about the baby. Like if these are all these ways of distracting, like get close to it, but not too close. You know, like don't, don't touch it. Just circle yeah. around it. I mean, it's beautiful that like just being present is so important and and required. And it's it's like I think that's amazing. And I'm sure this year was horrible for people who couldn't experience that um, or any any real form of mourning, but especially something like that, where it's like all about being there, you know, like not sending a card like you nothing's more important than just going. And that's why, like, you know, I, I I was wondering throughout the film, like, why doesn't she just leave? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, these, these, these things would go away. And they're really, the other thing I'm like, they're not like that serious, you know, what she's yeah. worried about. It's yeah. not really that big of a deal. But, um, you know, I think just this sense of, of uh, responsibility and a little bit of guilt, you know, peppered in there, of course, um, is preventing her from, from leaving perhaps. 
which her par- parents pour on her. I mean, that obvious part of them pouring the grief, I mean, the uh, guilt onto her, you know, about about everything. But two of the things that I found very interesting were that there was so much talking about other people. You know, they were just really a lot of judgment. So there was community, but it wasn't really, I don't know how to explain it. It wasn't really the kind of spiritual, it didn't feel spiritual because they were, you know, Nobody yeah. was really that nice, <laughs> you know. But I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of um, warmth in it in a way. It was just, um, to me, um, what, yeah, what they had to do, what they were required to do. How do you feel about that? Did you, did you see? Yeah, warmth it's in hard. It? It's I mean, at the at the end, you know, I think her her relationship with her mother was had a lot of warmth, and I think that deep down. Her, her parents are, are warm people, but yeah, there's this sense like, God, mom, like, or dad, why can't you just be on my team? You know, like, why do I have to feel like I'm showing up to a job interview with, or, you know, why do I have to like brace myself for the millions of comments about what I'm doing with my life? I'm 22, you know, like, why, why do I have to know, or, you know, what I look like, what I majored in, like, why can't you just be why can't we talk about something else, first of all, or like, you know, positive things? <laughs> Why does it have to be so judgmental? And and it's it comes from right. this weird warped version of love that like, I mean, I don't know if that's right. if that's real love, but it's. I think it is. I think that's actually part of the point yeah. that it is love. It's just a weird version of it. You know, also, there were a lot of lies revealed. You know, her lies were were revealed and his lies were revealed. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, too. and it probably felt good in a way. Maybe it was a cleansing experience by the end. I mean, yeah, and she, she and her ex-girlfriend revealed their true feelings um, that they were masking behind this, like, cattiness. Um, and, yeah, what I mean, you can't have love without honesty, so... And she, and she told she was babysit she was babysitting as her job, but she had told him that she was uh, he was investing yeah. in her company, right? Well, I think the whole thing for me right. also spoke very much to a particular. I think there are these times in life, but I do think that uh, your early twenties, right when you're about to get out of college, might be the most profound one of these like very bizarre transitional times between adult and child. It might be like the the biggest one. Because, you know, I think another one can kind of be like when you're 13, uh, not that you're an adult, but you're certainly not a child anymore. You know, that's a difficult one. Very, very difficult transition time to be in your early 20s. And I think that she was, it did such a beautiful job of portraying a young person who is desperately trying to be taken seriously in one sense uh, and, and wanting to take herself seriously and wanting to be an adult in one way and wanting to be open and loving and have a good relationship with her parents and be honest about her love for her ex-girlfriend and have herself be put together. And then there was this version that was happening to her of unraveling, of dealing with the transgressions that she's had from being a normal 22-year-old woman who makes mistakes uh, to like literally having coffee on her shirt so, you know, and I think part of the like people of mentioning constantly, oh, you're so slim now. It's like, 
the writer's way of like showing us like you're slim now you're an adult now you used to be overweight in our eyes as a kid now you're slim if you would eat more maybe you'd still be a kid you know what I mean now we're having to accept that you've you're a kind of grown woman who's coming into like a different form in your body and I think it was like so effective in that way of this like very complicated weird time that like I personally have tried to block from mine own memory about my early 20s, but it's yeah. just an uncomfortable, very yeah. uncomfortable. You're be- it's almost like one of those ancient torch machines where they put all your limbs and attach them to different parts and start pulling. That's what this movie made me feel like for her, you know? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, there's just the, the juxtaposition of her going straight from the appointment with her sugar daddy to the funeral is, I mean, the Shiva is like, um, it's, it it perfectly captures that, that age where like you are branching out, you know, you were living on your own in college, forming your own life, but you still like you're going to these events with your family and there's like this sense of regression when you're around them, um, both that you partake in and that they kind of force on you. It's a very good well, point. We start Excellent the film point. by seeing her with her sugar daddy and she is an quote adult. She is this like mm-hmm. kind of put together sexy person. She's having sex. She's with an older man. She's, you know, doing this kind of very independent adult thing with her life and then by the end of the film, she's squished in the back of a minivan <laughs> with her parents. Yeah. So, like, it's really, like, it's, uh, it reminds me in a way, just not at all, but just, I guess, in terms of, like, La La Land, right? In the beginning of La La Land, you have these wide, sprawling shots. And it's, like, this beautiful, like, panorama of, like, Los Angeles. And everything's so big. And by the time you get to the end of that movie the shots are so tight they're right up on their faces Mm. everything's so small you know and I always thought that was really interesting and not that this movie is anything like La La Land but in that same kind of way that (laughs) like there was so much kind of like openness and possibility and this is this adult woman and she's then by the end been reduced however not necessarily happier at the beginning and so you know what I mean like her life almost seemed like it had more promise with stripping away a little bit of like then you, yeah, it's phony because yeah, it was phony. Which she had been yeah. doing. But, you know, you're finding yourself at that age, and I thought it was very, very, very good at kind of like showing a very honest portrayal of which I think you know it's called Shiva Baby. The whole thing takes place at a Shiva. It's awkward, it's uncomfortable. There's this very like intentional music going on in the background, like, um, but I think that that for me that was my biggest takeaway. I'm not sure if that was the intended takeaway of the film as a seeing a young woman's kind of, you know, journey in her early 20s. But that's kind of what I took away from it that I like the most. Yeah. Which is, a, I, which is grieving in its own way, right? Because you're, you're, I mean, your younger self is dying and, you know, that's, that's a form of grief. Yeah, for everyone, for the parents, for you, for, for everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I I really liked it. And I think that, you know, um, what I was left with most of all is, a, a, like you said, Suzanne, in the beginning of really looking forward to seeing what this director does. And all of the acting was so 
phenomenal. So great. What is the name of the guy who played her dad? Oh, Fred Malamud. Yes. Oh my he's, god. He's great. Is not the best the best actor. And then what is what is the mother's name? Phoebe Draper? Something um, Draper. I know her last name is Draper because I always it remember. It is Polly Draper. Polly Draper. Yes. Yes. Anyway, it was it was really great. They were amazing and uh the, all the acting was really great. Yeah. Good choices. Yeah, good choices. Yeah. Really fun. Was it wonderful to Absolutely. watch them? I got eyes. so much more out of both of these films, especially Shiva Baby talk, talking to you guys. I feel like I wasn't really sure exactly how I felt about it and I'm seeing it in in yeah, a new way. So I think that like a lot of times we focus on the final product, myself included, right? Like with a Mm -hmm. film, like I liked the film. I didn't like the film. It was successful in this way. It was unsuccessful in this way. Like, and maybe off camera we can, or off mic, we can have a conversation about that because I certainly don't want to say anything that, I mean, not that there's that much negative to say, but like, you know, I, I think it's a really brave thing to make a film, especially as a young filmmaker, um, and absolutely, I think it's a absolutely. really, um, most of the time altruistic kind of thing and wanting to tell stories in the hope to help people better navigate and understand their own lives, to find themselves in the story. Right. So if we're to look at that from that angle, what a success, yeah. you know, and absolutely. And I think like that was the biggest kind of takeaway I had. I was like, wow, I'm so proud to see a young director, try to handle this topic and make and make some really good jokes and direct mm-hmm. some actors who have a lot of cachet and like huge careers behind them both of those two actors who played the mother and father are just mm-hmm. such seasoned character actors and to be able yeah. to do that i mean that's a huge feat that's a success in itself and so i i oh yeah I appreciated it for that i mean you just described like my entire philosophy of criticism which is really just not criticism at all like it's I yeah Mm -hmm. whenever any any film gets made no matter how bad it is I think it's a miracle and I Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. don't even really like to write reviews or give like an opinion about something unless I loved it um which I I'm usually pretty generous with my praise but I I'd more just think that yeah it's any film really if you think about it can can bring you somewhere that you weren't at the beginning and you know some are better at it than others or some might you know be a little bit um yeah just more effective but like if you if you come out differently than you were then it's a success exactly and like but that's what I love about um about being a quote-unquote critic is just that it's it's like it's my job to think deeply about these films and yeah. And that's why meaning. I love reading yeah. criticism because like you can read a really amazing piece of criticism about a film that is quote unquote, not great, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, I love the Buddhist philosophy. Um, and I think of that, I apply it to many, many things, which is not to take mm. the temperature of everything. Something isn't necessarily good or bad or right or wrong. It just totally. is what it is. And, you know, I teach my clients about that, and I say it's similar to the weather, you know. So if it's raining right now, it's not right. a bad day because it's raining. And if it's sunny, that's not a good day. 
So it's like just not taking the temperature yeah. Yeah. of everything. It gives you it an opportunity is. for something different than a sunny day would. And being thankful for the fact that there are people out there who take chances to like bring their perspective and to make a project. It is very hard, as you kind of alluded to, Susanna, to get a film made and... Yeah, I mean, also, we've seen so much already, right? So, the, like, at this point, I think our, you know, spidey senses are up to be like, well, this wasn't like what this was. And, and timing is so important. And, you know, I think of what if someone watched A Woman Under the Influence now? You know what I mean? And someone just made it, you'd be like, what? That, it had no plot. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or whatever. Like, the camera work was shit or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, then it was so great you look you can go back and watch that oh John Cassavetes is a genius and he is a genius you know what I mean but like it's timing is so important for things too and I think we owe filmmakers that um I don't know we owe we owe them that now who are, who are making films because of the fact that so much stuff has been made and because like no one's gonna be not many people are gonna be hailed as you know revolutionary filmmakers at this point because it's so hard to kind of come up with a new kind of way of filmmaking and a new concept or a completely original storyline so giving people that kind of grace and understanding that people uh I don't know you don't have to compare everything and things yeah. can just be what they are they can I don't know I just I I think it's uh it's like Bobby always says you really stick your neck out when you make a a film when you do anything publicly And um, I think we should honor people sticking their necks out. And both of these uh, women filmmakers did a great (laughs) job. And both of the films are beautiful and so valuable. And uh, thank you for picking two such wonderful films to talk about. And coming back, I love when you come on. It's it's something really to look forward to. It feels like a very special (laughs) kind of like treat. It's so fun. It's so fun talking about film and feelings with you guys. So... Anytime. Thank you. It's no, special thank you. for our listeners, and you're so brilliant. And, oh, good. Um, we oh. can't wait to have you back again. Oh, my God. Yes. Next, we have to kind of get our wheels turning about what we're going to do next time. I can't wait. I'm I mean, going to nominate E.T. So we have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I see every. Oh. I feel like I'm watching every film through the lens of like food and grief now. I'm like, oh, is that. Is that? <laughs> awesome. That's great. Cool. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, great. Love it. Time. So we oh, have a new oh. part of our show now. And it is that we, um, what did we like decide di- to call the it? Dinner the dinner party. Thanksgiving. No, the Thanksgiving. Where we all make a it's plate a of our vaginas and put them around the table. Like that other, <laughs> you know, that, isn't that a, like a famous sculpture yeah, thing, Ju- the dinner party? Judy yeah. Chicago. Yes, exactly. Yes, it is. So, it's a great, great show. But <laughs> um, here's some clay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what we do is, it was, we imagine that we've had such a good time and that it would be so much fun to sit down to a meal now. And what would we bring? So I already made it. I made it inside and I just made it a little while ago. And I've been making a really good tzatziki um, with um, yogurt and dill and scallions and a little garlic and uh, zest. And then I put some Israeli feta in it and it's so delicious. And then I took some, made some toasted pita breads. So that's what I'm going to bring. That (laughs) sounds delicious. Um... It's not, it's not very exciting, but the, the food that's like really enriching me right now, I've been working in Bushwick and it's really hard to find, um, like a healthy lunch. Like there's amazing tacos everywhere, but can't do that. So 
they but they have the ripest avocados in the delis Mm. so i've just been i've been going up to the um the deli counter and be like, can you just cut this in half and put some salt on it? And then I like buy plantain chips and eat it for lunch. So I would bring some ripe avocados with salt and plantain chips for you guys. (laughs) Yummy. Excellent. I just came across an old cookbook that I had that I unearthed from Bobby's garage, um, which is called green on greens. And it's a cookbook from 1984 and it goes through every vegetable and has all these very seventies and eighties recipes for how to prepare them, but they're wonderful. And one that I came across the other day was for sweet and sour broiled avocados. And it was just an avocado cut in half. And it had like honey and like balsamic and chili and butter. And you like brush the whole avocado with it and then you broil it and eat it hot. And I was like, God damn it. That sounds delicious. I do love a hot avocado, (laughs) but you don't see that often. No, that's a, that's a no, no generally. But if you, if you did it, I would eat it. (laughs) Blazing hot avocado. We used to do something like that at Brucey where we would grill a half avocado and stuff it with stracciatella. But that's the story for another day. What am I bringing? But you never asked. I'm going to bring some something that I just made for a picnic I'm going to tomorrow, which is some hummus. And that will go with your tzatziki and the avocado. Mm, I'm going to make some delicious hummus with like good. lots of tahini and it. lots of lemon and garlic. And uh, I'll bring some cherry tomatoes to dip in that stuff. And we got a, we got a stew going. Yum. Right, y'all. That's good. What a joy. What a you're a delight. You're a wonderful person. And uh, thank you so much for coming on and joining us and brightening up this rainy day. Thank you guys for inviting me back. I can't wait to come talk to you guys again. (laughs) Oh my god, we can't wait either. We'll see you soon, okay? Good. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.